0: You're listening to City Edge Church. For more information, go to cityedgechurch.com.au We're uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, at the morning, at the moment. And uh, so if you got your Bibles handy, I'd ask you to open up there in preparation Some of you would remember a series of messages that I preached at the start of 2019, two years ago now, about spiritual disciplines. It was a series that looked at various Christian practices such as prayer, Bible reading, worship, fellowship and other practices, and they're disciplines designed by God to help us to grow in our faith and in our knowledge of Jesus Christ. I did that series then, two years ago, because I felt it would lay a good foundation for the rest of the year, and indeed for the rest of our lives. Then at the start of last year, I had a strong sense that 2020 was going to be a difficult year. Little did I know what the year had in store for us. But I felt an urgency then to prepare us all for the year by preaching through the book of Ephesians. I was convinced that we needed to understand our position And our security in Christ if we were to survive 2020 with our faith intact. The year sadly revealed some cracks in the structure of many people's lives I think. While we here have survived physically and spiritually thank God. There have been moments when we've all been less gracious and less loving. And less encouraging of our brothers and sisters in Christ than we should have been. There's been more criticism and judgmentalism of others especially of other believers than is healthy for a Christian and far too little grace extended it hasn't been a good witness to non-Christians I don't think I'm convinced that that reaction from many people came about in part because too many Christians had taken their eye off the prize off the goal of their Christian faith Instead, they became absorbed by the current worldly circumstances and problems surrounding them. We're all guilty of what I think they call doom-scrolling, where we see disastrous messages about COVID or riots or earthquakes and just constantly scroll news reports and messages on Facebook about it. It's not healthy. So the COVID panic... Pandemic, sorry, and all the upheaval that it caused to our lives and continues to cause to this day stirred up unhealthy and ungodly reactions in many of us. And whatever steps the government took to handle the crisis, whether it was lockdowns and uh, restrictions that we felt were too harsh or whether it was little response, as some countries did, that we felt was uh, negligent, regardless of the response of the government's, one part of the population was sure to be enraged by it and turn against the other part and vice versa. It made no difference which side of the coin you were on. You were, in some cases, violently opposed to those with other outlooks. Piled on top of that, polarisation of politics worldwide, the chaos surrounding the death of George Floyd in the USA that sparked a Black Lives Matter response worldwide, you have a recipe for social upheaval. That the world itself should get caught up in vitriol and violence should be no surprise to us. After all, people without a transcendent God to turn to have nothing to shape their outlook but current events. But that Christians should react in a similar way is nothing less than appalling. For we are not citizens of this world, you might remember, And the Bible would remind us. We're citizens of another world, another kingdom. We're only passing through. While world events affect us, of course, they shouldn't shape us. I've made this point I can't remember how many times over the last 12 months. When our attention has been captured by the wrong vision, we succumb to the same pressures and temptations as the world around us. It's inevitable. So I decided to kick off 2021 with a series that I hope was designed to redirect our vision to what the future holds for the uh, for those of us who have put our trust in Jesus Christ. The purpose of the series that we've been working through is to build some resilience into our faith. So I began the year by a bird's eye look over the book of Revelation, zoomed over the top of Every chapter of Revelation and then zoomed down into one brief passage and one specific verse near the end of the book in chapter 21 where John wrote, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth, the ones we inhabit now, had passed away and the sea was no more. The chaos and confusion of this world will not last the Lord has promised the day is coming when he will make everything new so whatever it is that we're going through today whether it's pandemics hostile government legislation violence, natural disasters family breakdowns whatever it may be they're not the totality of life they're just a blip on the radar of a life that will last not just 40 years or 60 years or 80 years, but will last for eternity. So just as an athlete willingly and even joyfully submits to the most excruciatingly painful training to reach his Olympic gold goal, so we're called to joyfully endure the discomfort and the challenges and the opposition even of this world this world that we don't properly fit into, for the goal of attaining a new home in a new creation, in a new body with Christ. Paul wrote in Philippians 3, verse 12 and onwards, Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, Because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not forget that I uh, do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do forgetting what lies behind, and we could say forgetting what happens around, but forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal this to you also. So that's where our current look at 1 Corinthians 15 comes in. In this chapter we have a clear-eyed vision of what to look forward to. And the foundation of it all is the gospel, the good news of what Jesus Christ has already done. To recap, the chapter starts off in verse 1, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance... What I also received that Christ died for our sins accordance in accordance with the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. That message of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is of first importance because everything about Christianity hangs on it. As Paul goes on to make clear in the next several verses, if that event didn't happen, then Christianity is a farce and we're all deluded. If it didn't happen, then Paul's advice is to quit any pretense of faith and any attempt to obey God and instead go out and party. That's how serious this is. No death, no burial, no resurrection of Jesus Christ then it follows that there is no Christian faith at all, nothing. It can be difficult for us to understand why all this chaos surrounds us at the moment. Why do you allow it, Lord, we might ask? Why don't you do something to stop it? Or has it even got out of your control? Those are the sort of questions we as Christians can be tempted to ask. And in fact... There are arguments that some non-Christians make about God as a refusal, as a reason for their refusal to believe. If God exists, he either can't do anything about it, in which case is no use to me anyway, or he doesn't care about anything, in which case he doesn't care about me either. So why would I trust in a God like that? Valid question. If God is really like that if he is either weak or uncaring it's a valid question. But of course we know that's not the God that the Bible describes to us. He is both powerful and he is loving. He is able to stop all the chaos and violence in an instant and he cares about what happens to us in every moment. But and this is important. God has a bigger picture. He is using and he is even orchestrating world events for his purposes. Whatever he may not be directly responsible for, he is certainly responsible for in that he gave permission for those events to happen, including COVID. You can't read the book of Job and come to any other conclusion then that God is in control of everything. Whether it's good or bad, God is in control. And you can't look at the cross and conclude anything other than that God cares about humanity. But as I say, God has a bigger picture than what we can see. With our natural eyes, we can only see one or two tiny pieces of the jigsaw puzzle. They don't make much sense to us when we look at it like that. But God sees the whole picture of what he's doing. He sees the whole jigsaw puzzle. We need to keep those things in mind during chaotic and confusing and stressful times. And we need also to keep in mind that God's timing is not usually our timing. He will work it all out when he wants to work it out. Not when we think he should work it out. Remember, it was just at the right time that Christ died for the ungodly. It was not too early. It was not too late. It was just when God wanted it to happen. And so God has a plan that he is working out precisely to the time frame that he wants to work it out in. It may not be happening the way we want and you can bet it's not happening the way we want but it will all be worked out one day. So in our text in 1 Corinthians 15 starting at verse 22 Paul writes For as in Adam all die so in Christ shall all be made alive but each in his own order Christ the first fruits then at his coming those who belong to Christ then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God uh, the, God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted, that is, Jesus is accepted, Uh, sorry, the Father is accepted, who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. bit of a confusing passage in some ways. But the end of all this chaos is certain. But it won't come until Christ is finishing, finished destroying every opposition to his own rule on this planet. Every opposition, whether earthly or demonic. He will destroy all of them in his good time. Now there's a funny sounding verse in the middle of that passage. He must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. We sometimes think that Christ's reign will commence when he returns at the end of time. That he's not properly in charge at the moment. But not according to Paul. Paul is saying that Christ reigns now and will continue to reign until that final day. If that's true, then Christ is in charge of everything right now, just like the book of Job tells us which means that he is using the very things that shake us, rattle our faith, chaos, earthquakes, violence, pandemics, rebellion, vitriol, war, and every other bad thing to achieve his perfect end, the end he has in mind. And once he has done that, once he has destroyed every enemy, including death itself, He will hand it all back to his Father, who gave it to him to rule and reign in the first place. Frankly, that's not an easy passage to understand. But what is clear is that the final victory for Christ is coming. And we who have put our trust in him will get to share in the benefits of that victory one day. In verse 29 Paul writes, Otherwise, What do people mean by being baptised on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptised on their behalf? So while we're on the subject of difficult passages, what about this one? What does this mean? People being baptised on behalf of the dead? That's strange, very strange. And this verse has taxed the minds of the most educated and intelligent scholars for centuries. In fact, this particular verse is one that shapes a Mormon practice. Mormons are well known for genealogies. In fact, when we visited Salt Lake City, Utah, the centre of Mormon faith, several years ago, I dropped into a genealogical research facility that they have there to try and get past a dead end in my own ancestry research. They have billions of records stored. And they'll help anyone who comes in, Mormon or not. And they help me get back another generation or so past that roadblock. In fact, one of the responsibilities of the Mormon missionaries, missionaries, those clean-cut young men you sometimes see out wearing white shirts and black ties and badges on their Chest is to collect information from cemeteries and elsewhere to add to this archive. Their research, which is a boon to ancestry sleuths, is done for a purpose, though. It's not done just because they feel generous. A large part of the reason they do it is so that they can be baptised for the dead. They can be baptised on behalf of those who have not heard the Mormon message thus ensuring they believe the salvation of that dead person. That practice is founded on this very verse. But no Christian church practices baptism for the dead. Why not? There's a number of reasons for it, but mostly, but not only because baptism doesn't save anyone. Baptism has no magical or mystical properties that reverses the effects of sin and restores a person into relationship with God. There's no suggestion anywhere in the Bible that baptism has that sort of power. Rather, baptism is an outward sign of an inward working of the Holy Spirit that brings new life to a formerly dead heart. I won't spend any more time talking about baptism than that, but the Mormon practice of baptism for the dead cannot be supported by Christian scriptures. So what does Paul mean by this verse? The Mormon understanding is certainly the most obvious way to read it. It seems fairly plain when you look at it that way. But there are several different theories about what Paul meant. None of them, I might say, entirely satisfactory. The most commonly accepted understanding is that Paul is not suggesting that this is a practice that anyone should take up. He's not endorsing baptism for the dead. Rather, he's just commenting on a common but wrong practice that some were doing, just reporting it, in effect. The first problem with that usual understanding is that there doesn't seem to be any historical evidence that anyone was doing that anyway, in churches or in pagan religion. There's no record Christian or secular that it was ever practiced at that time in history. The other problem is that it would seem that unlikely that Paul would mention something so clearly out of step with everything else that he has written on salvation and baptism and resurrection without confronting the error in some way. For the practice seems to suggest that some can be saved without any faith, after death, on the basis of works performed by someone else. That is contradictory to all of Scripture. So if that's not what Paul means, what does it mean? It's difficult to say with any certainty. There have been plenty of alternative explanations proposed, as many as 30, I believe. One is that Paul is referring to living Christians who view their bodies as decaying and subject to death. And if that's so, his argument goes, what's the point of baptising your perishing bodies if there's no resurrection? John MacArthur thinks that it refers to living believers who give outward testimony to their faith by baptism in water because they were first drawn to Christ by the exemplary lives, faithful influence, and witness of believers who have subsequently died. That might be a valid explanation, but it still doesn't quite seem to say what Paul is saying. But whatever that verse may mean, the act of baptism itself speaks of death, burial, and resurrection. So at the very least we could argue that getting baptized in any way or for any purpose is meaningless if the dead are not raised. Paul goes on to question in verse 30 why any of this would matter if there's no resurrection. Why are we in danger every hour, he says. I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. If there's no resurrection, if there's no life after death, what's the point of any sacrifice? What's the point of enduring hardship? What's the point of confronting danger anywhere? Why not run? Why not hide? Why not push someone else forward to face the danger instead of you? It makes sense to protect yourself from harm as much as possible in this life, if this life is all there is. We know that Paul faced incredible and violent opposition and troubles. It makes our government restrictions on church meetings look pretty tame. you probably read his record in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 where he speaks of imprisonments, countless beatings, often near death, the 40 lashes minus one, beaten with rods, stoned, shipwrecked, lost at sea, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, Danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Paul didn't write those things about the troubles he faced to make us feel bad about ourselves. He didn't write them to make us feel guilty or insignificant. He wrote it to show that the glorious power of God is shown in our weakness. If I must boast, he says, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. The point here, of course, is that there's no sense facing danger and fighting wild beasts in whatever form they may come, animal, human or demonic, if there's nothing to look forward to after this life. And there's no point resisting sin in this life either if there's no resurrection to life afterwards. Why go hungry and thirsty? Why struggle with sin? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die a perfectly logical philosophy if there's no resurrection. Live fast, die young. You're here for a good time, not for a long time. Party hard now, because you won't get to party afterwards. You only live once, so enjoy it while you can. Those who would deny the resurrection, whether they claim to be Christians or atheists, will lead you astray if you listen to them long enough. Be careful who you listen to. Be careful what you're absorbing. Bad company will corrupt your good morals because you're shaped by what you listen to, by the things you take in, by what you believe. And if you listen to the enemies of Christ, you will eventually succumb to their worldly philosophy that nothing really matters so you may as well just have fun your body is merely an instrument for pleasure so use it in any way you like but what if resurrection is real wake up from your drunken stupor Paul says in verse 34 Come to your senses, one translation puts it. Do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. And I say this to your shame. Christ has been raised from the dead. So will we humans be one day. Some tragically will be raised to judgment. Some who refuse to abandon their sin will face eternal punishment that is their due for their sin and their rebellion against God. They have chosen to reject all knowledge of God, knowledge that should be obvious to them from creation. It's not just that they can't be sure, it's just they're willfully ignorant. Paul wrote in Romans chapter 1, verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness, So they are without excuse. Creation should tell you clearly that there is a God. There is too much about biology and astronomy and every other science that is just mind-blowingly amazing and can't easily be explained without a creator God. Don't be one of those who are left without excuse on that last day. If you're doubting the truth of the Christian faith, if you're doubting the reality of Jesus Christ, doubt no longer. Today is the day to make up your mind and put your trust in Jesus Christ. Tomorrow may be too late. Turn to him today. If you're a Christian questioning the reality or the necessity Of the resurrection. It's time to put those doubts behind you. The resurrection is certain. It's more certain than that the sun will rise tomorrow morning. It is so certain that the whole of Christianity hangs on it. As Paul said earlier in the chapter, if Christ hasn't been raised, then Christianity is nothing but smoke and mirrors, it's a farce. Abandon it now and stop pretending. But for those of us who believe what the word of God says, those of us who have been convinced by the gospel, you can stand up straight and tall and strong. You can get some steel in your spiritual spines. You can withstand anything that the world will throw at you or the enemy will tries to drag you down with. You can stand because you know that you have a better future. You have a resurrection coming when there will be a new heaven and a new earth and new bodies for us. Then we can say with Paul that I might know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. That's the purpose of this look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It's to make you resilient in your faith. When we're resilient, we may bend, but we never break. The storms that surround us, that buffet us, that attack us sometimes directly for our faith, cause us to bend in the wind like a palm tree in a tornado, but not break. We are resilient. Therefore, my beloved brothers, Paul says at the end of this chapter, be steadfast, be immovable, be always abounding, in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labour is not in vain. Friends, we can continue strong in our faith and continue doing good works, no matter what the government legislates, no matter what the pandemic throws at us, no matter the violence we may see in the streets. Our good works should and must continue. For a day will come when we are criticized by the unbelievers. But as I think Peter said, they will see your good works and glorify God on the day he visits us. That's a goal worth working towards, worth looking forward to. That's something that can keep you strong, and immovable in your faith. Let's pray. Father, we thank you first of all that Jesus was resurrected. He died for our sins, he was buried and he was resurrected that we might receive the forgiveness of our sins. We thank you, Lord, that that is true, as true as any of us are sitting or standing here today, as true as the sun shines over our heads, Lord. He was raised, therefore we will be raised. And we thank you, Lord, that that you have done that work of taking out our dead heart and putting in a heart of flesh to us, giving us a new spirit, Lord, that we would follow after you, And Lord, I ask that you'll keep our eyes on the prize, that high calling upward to eternal life in a new heaven and a new earth and a new body with Christ himself. That we wouldn't be distracted and dragged down and discouraged and overwhelmed and anxious about the things we see around us. But Lord, we would have the strength, the courage, the boldness to stand strong and proclaim this gospel that never changes. That Christ died for our sins, was buried and resurrected to life. Lord, no matter what this year 2021 brings, I pray that we will all have that steel in our spine and a boldness to speak and proclaim Jesus Christ, Lord and Saviour of all. Amen. Thanks for listening to City Edge Church. For more information, go to cityedgechurch.com.au.